followers of Jesus Christ have assembled in His honor on the first day of the week for nearly 2,000 years. We gather, oddly enough, to render homage to one who came to earth to be served, but who said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In our communion around the Lord's table this morning, we have contemplated Christ's ultimate service to us. The ransom that Jesus paid, laying down his life in our behalf as the Lamb of God. The cross certainly is the pinnacle of Christ's work as God's servant. But we must not restrict the message of Jesus as servant to his death on Calvary, nor even to his life on earth. The message of Jesus as servant must profoundly shape our lives as his followers to this very day. Remember Matthew chapter 20. Unbelievers define greatness, Jesus taught, by how many people one can boss around. How many people do you stand over? How many people can you control? That's really the issue when it comes to leadership. But how did Jesus put it to us? He said in Matthew 20, It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you, must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think of that teaching and its radical nature in this world. The greatest among you will be those who serve. And Jesus demonstrated this profoundly in John 13. Just remember back to that scene on the night of his betrayal. He takes a cloth and he washes the feet of his disciples. There's an awful lot to think about that night. And much profound truth to be taught. And a final time with his disciples before his departure, but he takes the time to serve their most basic need, dirty feet. And he says on that night in John 13, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. He did this on purpose. He was seeking to model the truth that he had lived out all of his life here in this last scene. I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so the followers of Jesus Christ, on the basis of the life that he lived and the words that he taught, are to be a fellowship of servants. 
We are called to live a life oriented to the service of God and to the service of others. In the 1980s, some of you will know of this, uh, servant leadership became a trendy concept in managerial philosophy. In fact, there were individuals who had risen very high in the corporate world who had connections to uh, Christ and to the Scriptures and began to try to bring some of Jesus' teaching into the corporate setting. Many people listened. It sounded very exciting. In fact, many of those thoughts still continue to echo around managerial conferences and the like. However, they have found it much, very difficult to apply in the corporate setting. Very difficult to apply. And of course, it's seek, they're seeking to apply it in places where there are regenerate individuals who are in the majority. It's going to be pretty difficult to apply there. But in the church of Jesus Christ, we are uniquely fitted in this countercultural family to apply this very principle. That the greatest are those who serve. That we have been called to be slaves for Christ and servants of one another. It is perfectly fitting then, when we think of Jesus' teaching and His example and the life to which He has called us, it is perfectly fitting that within the local church there is an office that is called servant. It is a word we are familiar with, deacon. From the Greek word diakonos, really just transliterated, it means servant, very simply. This title says something about the office but it certainly says something as well about who we are as people. And I invite you to think along those terms as we consider what might seem like just a simple list of qualifications for a particular office and really not very applicable to the vast majority of us seated here in some respect. Don't think that way. First of, us, all of, first of all, all of us as a body are those who are to work together to elect deacons in this assembly. But secondly, this says something about who we are as a body. It says something about how the church is to function. And I'd like to bring us back to that point as we close later this morning. But having considered the office of overseer in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, we turn today to consider qualifications for the second local church office of deacon. And in similar fashion, Paul begins with personal character qualifications of deacons, beginning at verse 8. He says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Deacons, as I said, the word means simply servants. The Greek word is commonly employed in reference to all Christians in the New Testament. In fact, the Apostle Paul re repeatedly refers to himself as a diakonos, as a servant or a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the term here takes on technical meaning. This is the servant par excellence within the assembly. The distinction is clear with the overseers as we compare other scriptures, but I'd like to just look at one today as we go to Acts chapter 6. In verse 1, Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, how does this office of deacon compare with the office of overseer slash elder, those who have pastoral responsibility within the assembly? I don't know that there's any place that so clearly depicts this distinction 
as Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And let me hasten to say, the seven that are referred to here are not called deacons, but I think they are here as perhaps forerunners of the deacons, and it is certainly a relationship that carries over into the deacon-elder relationship. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. It's the local church conflict. First church in Jerusalem. People not getting along, feeling that there has been some misuse, some unfairness in the assembly. And the twelve, verse 2, summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Without a cultural system in place, for Christians, and particularly for those having come into Jerusalem from outlying areas for the festival of Pentecost, there was really no support for these individuals outside of the local church. Someone needed to take food to these in need. But this raises the problem for the apostles that the preaching of the Word of God, the teaching on a personal level, all the way up to the proclamation of God's Word before the assembly will be compromised if this is how the disciples, the the apostles, spend their days. And so, verse 3, they say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose these seven men. Notice verse 4 again. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. These individuals will devote themselves to practical ministry of meeting the needs of individuals within the assembly. I think Acts 6 then, though not laying out the title deacon for us here, shows the relationship between two kinds of leaders within the assembly. This relationship develops and comes, brings us now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. There is a relationship between elders and deacons, or overseers and deacons, as is described here and in other places. That relationship is highlighted also by the unique qualifications for deacons. Or we might say it this way, what is not mentioned for them in comparison with the elders' overseers. There is nothing said, as we find in verse 2, of the deacons being hospitable. There is nothing said about them in verse 2 of them being uh, gifted to teach. There's nothing said about them managing ministry, verse 5. Not to say they have no part in any, any of these matters. But where the overseer elder is called to, be a, uh, called to a ministry of spiritual oversight as a shepherd of souls, deacons are called to a ministry of practical service to the flock. That is the distinction. There will be much overlap between the two in given situations. But there is this distinction between them. I've pictured often the deacons of the church are, forgive the football analogy, but are the front linemen, the offensive linemen on the field. They are the ones that clear the way for the backfield as the elders. 
in many churches, deacons serve as something very different than that. Not individuals who clear the way, people who get dirty in the service of God and are leading the church in the charge forward into this world. Many times, deacons in many churches are a board of congregational representatives designed to keep the pastoral staff in check, to make sure they don't get too far off. There's some tremendous frustrations that come through this. It reminds me of a scene that played out in our home uh, some while back. I was using Pastor Pratt's primer on the, the church, the local church, and just teaching that at the dinner table over a period of time. And I would kind of in the column, be, I was writing this little, uh, these, these questions that we would start with, some a type of catechism running, I guess, as we went through it. And one of the questions that I asked was, what are the two, or name the two offices of the church. And one of the little guys at our table back then, very enthusiastically jumped in one night and said, elders and demons. (laughs) And the sad truth is, in a lot of churches, that's not very far off. There's a lot of pastors that really sense that relationship. God's design, of course, is something very different. And I think we draw a lot from our culture, making sure that there's checks and balances. The check and balance is with the assembly. And as elders and deacons work throughout the assembly and with the assembly, as people know them, as they know people, there's many checks and balances that are appropriate and right. But there, we are not to gain our thinking from our government and to see deacons seated as semi-demons to keep the pastoral-oriented ministers in check. Rather, there is to be a teamwork here that fits beautifully as it does in Acts chapter 6. There are individuals who give themselves to the teaching of God's Word and ministry to people on a spiritual level, and those whose emphasis falls distinctly to meeting physical needs within the assembly. One without the other is in big trouble. This is a teamwork where both pull together. Now, I imagine that there's a lot of offensive linemen who would really love to be a quarterback some days. And I guarantee there's a lot of quarterbacks some days who would really love to be an offensive lineman. We always can look to another place, another position, another opportunity, and think that it's better than where we are. But God has brought these two together with their unique gifting to carry on the work of God within the assembly, remembering that for all of us, there is spillover, carryover, and emphasis in our own personal lives as spiritual shepherds to others and as servants of Jesus Christ, to which he has called all of us. But there is to be a unique teamwork that develops here. So, as we go back to the qualifications, deacons likewise, there's a connection there to the overseers of verses one, described in verses 1 through 7. They are held to a similar standard in terms of reputation and character. They are, first of all, to be dignified, that is, men worthy of respect, who carry themselves with a proper degree of seriousness. We're not looking here for a silly, flippant individual. They are, double, they are not to be double-tongued. That is not a man of slippery speech. He speaks one thing to one person, another thing to another person, shading the truth here and there, using uh, his tongue in a way that is not controlled and not godly. 
This is to be one who is not addicted to much wine. Addicted is, I think, probably really a poor translation. The Greek reads literally, not too much wine being devoted. The idea is not if the guy is uh, an absolute drunk, you rule him out and everybody else is okay. It's not addicted in that sense, but diluted wine was commonly consumed in that day, and no man known to spend inordinate time consuming substantial amounts of wine was fit for church office is the point. A man who evidences mastery over his tastes is really at issue here. Does the man have self-control? Is there any interest that's drawing him down and away from the path of godliness? He's to be one who is not greedy for dishonest gain. The context probably involves the handling and distributing of money to the poor, as we find in Acts chapter 6. If this individual has a, has, is greedy for gain, it's going to be very easy to get sticky fingers, as they call it, and to find money coming into his own possession that was intended for others. You can't take on someone like that. Os Guinness, quoted by R. Kent Hughes, says, If a man is drunk on wine, you'll throw him out. But if he is drunk on money, you'll make him a deacon. That should not be the orientation of any assembly. And it cannot be our orientation. There needs to be one who is free from this idol that is so prevalent in our culture. In verse 9, we read that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. There is no teaching qualification for deacons as there is for overseers in verse 2. A deacon may be an excellent teacher, however. But whether a teacher or not, the teaching of the Bible is not a unique and necessary responsibility of deacons. They are, however, to be men who embrace and obey the true doctrine. This mystery speaks of God's progressive revelation of salvation truth. It is the Christian faith. The mystery is that which God is revealing over time about His saving purposes. And those who are deacons need to have a grasp of this truth of God's Word. They must be insulated against false doctrine and rejoice in the message of Scripture. They may not be tremendous teachers. They don't need to be tremendous teachers, but they do need to be individuals who know God's Word and love it. There is a belief that is essential here, and there is, secondly, you notice, a practice that is essential. They hold this true doctrine with a clear conscience. That is, they not only know it, but they live it out. Verse 10, And let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The word also here I think is key. Let them also be tested. Also, what does that mean? Also in addition to these other qualifications or also in addition to the overseers, which is the way that I take it and it's a close call. But probably the idea is let the deacons be scrutinized before they are chosen to serve, just as are the overseers scrutinized before they serve in their office. I don't think the idea is probably that here a reference to a unique probationary period of service for deacons. I don't know that it would be wrong for a church to establish that. But here I think he's simply saying don't throw someone into this office before carefully assessing their character. And then let them serve. Let's sit on that for a while. They are deacons. The word means servants. And then let them loose. Let them go to serve. The actual work is not defined, is it? 
And I think one of the reasons is probably that this is an office that is very flexible within individual congregations. When it comes to the job description of the overseer, of the elder, of the pastor, it's very clear what that individual is supposed to do in Scripture. It's laid out. But nothing is said about deacons. And again, I think the indication is that the church will define the role somewhat depending on its unique situation. Our deacons carry a fairly significant responsibility when it comes to this building. If you're meeting outside in East Africa under a tree as a church, which many churches have done already uh, this morning, you really don't need to worry a whole lot about your building. So there's, a, there's a, a flex, a flux here with what the deacons might be doing. But what the ministry of deacons does entail is serving the body. That much is clear. They're called to a ministry of addressing the physical needs of the assembly and the community. It makes no sense then to select a man who does not evidence a service orientation. I think we always need to allow room for growth for an individual. But is this a man, or do you see a man, considering for the office of deacon, who seems to always give the slip to jobs, the things that need to get done? What we don't want is Mr. Teflon. There's just always a way of kind of stepping back and letting others take responsibility. Fairly skilled at avoiding work, assuming that others are going to do the job. I think a deacon should never be that individual who is always too busy. That's just immaturity. We're all too busy. No matter where you draw the line, no matter what you do, no one has time to serve other people. As we define time in this culture. This is an individual who's just always skirting, stepping back, letting others take. I think that's a person we avoid in this position. So the roof of the building is leaking. There are tables and chairs to be set up or put away after an event. There is a call to help someone in need in the community and to go to that individual's house and to deliver food or to deliver uh, financial ability or to go and to help somehow with some need that they have at their place. A deacon is not somebody there who steps back, holds his breath, hoping somebody else is going to get the job done. A deacon is someone who steps in and gets it done. The ideal is a man who is quick to serve. The ideal is a man who is capable of taking initiative in addressing needs and bringing others along in the work, God willing. These are men who are to be doers, to people who get it done. These are just a sketchy list of qualifications. They give us something of the idea of the man and the work that he will be doing within the assembly. We move then, secondly, to family leadership qualifications. We've looked at character qualifications. Now to family leadership qualifications, beginning at verse 11. Now I'm interpreting this a bit, so we're going to work through this for a little bit of time here. This is the most difficult interpretive issue that we run into is in verse 11 where it says their wives likewise must be dignified not slanders but sober-minded faithful in all things who are their wives why are they described the reason this is a difficulty is because the greek word can be also translated women and the word there is not found in the original text 
So suddenly we run into verse 11 as women likewise must be dignified, and that raises a question. For just for sake of moving through this a little bit faster, and hopefully we can think through it a bit, because this is important. I skip all kinds of interpretive issues that aren't important every week, but this is one I think is important, that we understand where we're heading with deacons in our church. Let me uh, give you just a few ideas of the Greek word gynaikos, which can be translated wife and can be translated woman. Depends on the context. We're not helped there with what Paul is saying, so we need to think through what might this mean. The first is that it refers to women in general. Just out of the clear blue, Paul starts talking to women in the assembly. I'm tipping my hand there a little bit, aren't I? <laughs> uh, secondly, is that it, is, it refers to women deacons. The, the women. Uh, so now we're referring to women deacons. The third is that it is a separate order of deaconesses. The fourth is that it refers to, wow, the deacons' wives. What do we do there? Um, let me walk through this again. I'm going to take the position that this is a reference to the support for the wives, referring to the wives of the deacons, and in that way to answer these other views. But you've got to walk with me through this. But kind of what we had to do with one woman, man, last week, but we do so now with this idea. These wives, who are they? Do we have women deacons? Should we have a separate order of deaconesses? I, I think a reference here to women in general is entirely out of context. Uh, that he just begins to talk about all the women in the assembly here just does not fit. We're talking about the overseers. Now we're moving to the deacons. To just talk about women generally doesn't work at all. Secondly, if a third order is in view, I offer these concerns. There's no title given to these women in contrast to verses 10 and 12. So in verse 10, we have a reference to the deacons. In verse 12, a reference to the deacons. And then we have this whole order in verse 11 without any title that is granted to them. Secondly, there's no reference to the order found elsewhere in the New Testament. If we had deacons, deaconesses, and overseers, you would assume you'd find that somewhere. Such as Philippians chapter 1, where the book of Philippians is addressed to the overseers and deacons. There's no reference there to the deaconesses. There is no qualification, thirdly, of fidelity to one's husband in contrast to 1 Timothy 3, 4, 12, and Titus 1, 6. Every time deacons are considered, every time overseers are considered, the management of the home is of great importance. The relationship to the man's wife is of great importance. Here we would have a distinct order and a distinct office in the church where that qualification is not even considered. It seems rather odd to us. I would add to this, this is a very strange place to interrupt qualifications for deacons with a third office. You're talking about deacons, then you throw in the middle, women deacons, and then you come back to the male deacons. That seems very unusual. I think what fits much better in my thinking is why is fitting smoothly in with the discussion in verse 12 about the deacon's family. So in verse 11 is introduced their wives who need to be such and such. Then verse 12, the deacons each be, let the deacons each be the husband of one wife. One more point here, and that is Gnaikos is used in verse 12 and means wives. No one is arguing in verse 12 where it says the husband of one wife 
that that's not dealing with wife, a marital relationship. So the word is used there in verse 12. Let's use the word the exact same way in verse 11, since there's no indication we should use it differently. So for those reasons, I'm going to stand with the idea that the deacons here are men, that, they, that there is not an order of women deacons uh, that is in view here. Now, I would say that the strongest position outside of this one would be that there are women in, among the deacons. And I think if there is a church that takes that view, there's good reason to hold that position here, biblically. There are arguments to that end, and I think we could uh, certainly fellowship with someone who had women deacons on this basis of the interpretation of Scripture. I just think it's the wrong interpretation. And I think we really, usually, the reason that a church has women deacons is a whole different topic. It's a whole different argument. So my point is, it's not on the basis of this passage that there would be any difference with such a position, but rather probably and usually on the basis of other issues, male and female relations within the church. We do have to answer the perhaps strongest argument for the fact that these are women deacons, that men and women are in the diaconate, and that is that there's no reference to the wives of the overseers in verses 1 through 7. I would say that the reason is probably that elders' wives are not involved in providing oversight of the church. By contrast, deacons' wives, like all believers, are servants. So with a husband who is given heightened responsibilities to minister to the needs of the assembly, his wife will naturally find herself by his side sharing in his ministry. So what is needed for him is going to often naturally be needed for her. This is particularly true if there's a deliverance of aid to those who are needy. The elders' wives, I think we could also argue, are in a sense covered under verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3. Uh, again, this is uh, not an exhaustive list, and so for the number of things to be missing is really not any surprise. But again, back to the idea that there are men and we, women as deacons, I, I don't think this is really a big issue. I think overall, this is a matter of what we are all serving as servants. But within the office of the church, in parallel to the overseers, it seems to me that the text is indicating here nothing about a third order, but really, again, the leadership of the church in, uh, as the responsibility of the men, and through them, the women coming alongside and all working together as deacons. So the difference between the two is really not this passage and is really not a large issue. Again, I think the issue arises at another level when it comes to male and female relationships, uh, either honoring the Word of God or confining themselves to the dictates of our culture. That's a whole other topic. But moving further then, if this is the women of, the, of these uh, elders, then they too are to have the same kind of character for which we have argued here. Verse 11, their wives are to be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. They are clearly to come alongside their husbands and will be ministering within the assembly in a way that necessitates that they also have a particular character. And so when a man is chosen for deacon, if he is married, there needs to be a consideration of his wife and who she is because it will affect the work that he does. The same thing would be true for overseers. It's just not mentioned here because it is not an exhaustive 
qualification list. But we move then to verse 12 concerning their management of the, the management of their homes. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Again, I don't think there's, this is now a change in, in talking about another order, but continuing on in the discussion with deacons after this little um, uh, parenthetical idea in verse 11, uh, and, and a significant one, but it kind of breaks the flow of thought when he comes back to deacons, verse 12, who must be the husband of one wife. Again, the Greek term, one woman man. And I won't argue for that point here today, but I believe to take, as we discussed last week, a man singularly devoted to his wife. With every other qualification in both lists, the focus here centers on present positive standing. Is he a man who is devoted, a one-woman man, who manages his children and household well? Once again, the home is the proving ground for a man's function as leader in the family of God. The nature of the deacon's service, it says to us, and in a sense, then, the nature of the service that we all have within the assembly, that the nature is connected directly to our function within the body of Christ. The nature of the deacon's service to the church does not require a qualifying phrase such as found in verse 5 with the, with the overseers of oversight and management. Nonetheless, his function as a faithful head of his home will be reflected in his work, not only in the work of oversight, but also in the work of service. Look at a man's family. Look at the direction that he gives. Look at the way that he manages the situation, and that will be the kind of deacon that you will be receiving as a church. Elders, wives, um, I'm sorry, I missed my place here. Uh, the assumption is that uh, a biblical view of the role of the husband and father. That we have a biblical mindset when it comes to his responsibility of leadership. Without that, this passage makes no sense at all. And for those of you that are in journey, that are working your way toward a more biblical view of the family, there's a lot of things to work through. Just hang in there. God's vision is beautiful. It works, it's his design, but you have to come with that vision as a church or you're not even able to discern who should be overseers and elders. And you have to come at that position as an individual family or there is absolutely no carryover in qualifying as a church office holder. Well, we come then to verse 13 and the spiritual prospect of deacons. Their spiritual prospect for... Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This serves, I think, as a summary statement of verses 8 through 12. When a deacon serves faithfully, he gains a good reputation in the eyes of others, and his faith in union with Jesus grows increasingly strong. Now, there is a direct connection then between serving God and others with, and growth in Christian influence and biblical truth. Is this true just for deacons? Is this set aside just for them uniquely? I don't think that's the case at all. This is not true only for those who are holding office 
in the church. This is the nature of the Christian life. And it is here that we must all come on board very carefully, being awake and hearing this. There is a direct connection between serving God actively and your growth as a Christian. Those who live a life of service grow in the likeness of Jesus. And who was Jesus? I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. As we lay down our lives in service to Christ and to others, we grow in the likeness of Jesus. And growing in the likeness of Jesus, there is a godly influence which begins to emit from our being. And as that godly influence emits from our being, people appreciate it who know God and love Him. And there can be then a deepening of our faith in God as we sense the work that He's doing in us as we serve Him and serve His people. Christ came as servant of God and others. He is our model, and the local church should reflect that orientation. We should be a fellowship of servants, such that one of the offices, indeed, in our assembly is called servant or deacon. Now let's say this. Service can obviously be nothing but dead works. We're always in danger when we serve Christ. To do so out of wrong motivations and false ambition to promote ourselves. Nor is the idea, I think, that the church has lots of jobs to do and you kind of have to just get it done. I mean, you go to a, a ball game and people throw things all over the place and you know there's somebody that's going to come and they're hired to clean up all the wrappers and all the mess after the crowd leaves. And you know, church isn't like that. Church doesn't hire people who clean up after us, and so we kind of have to all pitch in and do lots of things just to make the thing go. That's a horrifying orientation. And if you're anywhere close to that, I just pray that something will get put underneath you right now and will change you forever. It'll just blow you right off your seat. Maybe not literally, but that'd be fun to watch. But uh, you know what I mean. There's just all these tasks we got to do. It's kind of like mowing the, the lawn and raking the leaves and cleaning up dishes. And, yet, and we got to all sort of share this because we're a volunteer organization. There's only one reason that we need for serving Jesus Christ. And that is two pictures. The picture of our master with a towel washing his disciples' feet. And the picture of our Master laying down his life on the cross in service to God and to us as sinners. We don't serve to get some jobs done. We serve because Jesus is our Lord. The right focus that we should bring to it is a life of love. If our motivation is Christ washing the disciples' feet and our motivation is Jesus dying in our place to pay the greatest need that we had, then how that works out within our life is not obligation to get some jobs done in this volunteer organization. The motivation is love. 
to so love others and to so love God that we pour out time and ability and financial resource to serve Jesus Christ with gladness. Maybe you, this morning, are on the sidelines. You're watching other people serve Christ. Maybe some of it's confusion to know what to do, and how to get involved, what can be accomplished. One thing that God continues to show me that I find so amazing is the virtually infinite number of ways in which his people can serve him. In ways that are prominent and everyone sees, in ways that no one will ever see, or very few. God has given each of us a call to serve his purposes in some respect. Serve his purposes within our families is certainly part of that calling. But beyond just our immediate family, to serve the purposes of God within the body of Jesus Christ is a calling upon every Christian. And I encourage you, we will never hear in this assembly a strong arm twisting, we have to get this job done. There's times we have mundane things that everybody needs to help us with and get done. No question about that. But there won't be an arm twisting, you've got to do this. Because really what should motivate each one of us is love for others and love for God. And believe me, there is a virtually infinite number of ways in which you can serve the body of Christ with the abilities that he has given to you. And I call anyone who says, I'm on the sideline. I'm really not functioning and accomplishing anything for Christ. You need to talk with someone. You need to come in. You need to look at your life not simply as participating in what you hear in the church, but participating in what the church is doing. And I say that for no one's good more than your own. Because note again the connection here. There is a connection between serving Jesus Christ and deepening in the faith. This is so real to me because I know it in where it happened in my life. Just the way the circumstances of God worked out in my own disobedience and my own foolishness. I was old enough to come to a place in life where I crossed that line and stuck my neck out and said to Jesus Christ, I am yours to use within this local church, the church where I was at at the time, to do whatever you want me to do. For other reasons, but certainly for that one, I look to that time in my life as a place of transformation. I don't believe I was saved there, but I believe something unique began to take place through the sanctification that comes through serving Christ. And I just call all to do it. It won't look the same for any two people. But you need to be pouring out your life in love for others and for God within his program, the local church. Now to do that, for some I would assume here this morning, the first thing that really needs to happen is you need to be reconciled. 
to Christ. You don't serve within the family of God until you're in it. You've got to be brought in. And that means that there has to be a fundamental change in your orientation. As our prayer said this morning, we are self-idolaters. We're born that way. To think of serving others, we can only think in terms of how that crimps my style. How that's difficult. How I don't want to do that or do so for the wrong reasons. But alienated from God by your sin, you need to come to a place where you turn from your sin. Where you abandon it and you receive Christ as your Savior. He paid the penalty of your sin as a ransom. Dying in the place of the sinner. And rising from the dead that you might enter into new life. You need to embrace Him and His grace. And as you do, you will be freed from the controlling center of self. And you will come into the light of Jesus the servant. And learn what it means to live a life of love for others. It's tiring. At times it's painful. You have to put a lot of self-interest on the shelf, certainly. But you will find nothing but joy. You'll enter into the life of love that Christ laid down for you and calls you to embrace. I plead with you. Come to Him and receive His grace today. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we need You. We need to serve You. We need to know You. And I pray that You'd bring those two ideas together for each one of us. That in serving You, we come to know You better. We thank You for our Savior and we rejoice together in the work that He has done in our behalf. And pray now that as the Spirit of God works within us to move us and to make us into what You want us to be, I pray, Father, that we would faithfully and mercifully be drawn close to You. We come at this time of giving and we are awed by the gift of Jesus Christ in our behalf. And we rejoice together in this service of giving that we might carry on Your work, be a blessing to other people, See the gospel spread throughout the world and solidified in this place where we find ourselves. We dedicate, Father, our gifts to your glory and to your honor as we continue to rejoice in Jesus Christ. We give you praise for all that you have done and accomplished for us in him and ask that you will receive these gifts from hearts that are filled with thanksgiving. In Christ's name I pray, amen.